Welcome to Who's Training Who with Allie and Tom. This podcast is mostly about dogs, but we also chat about other animals too. We talk a lot about training and behavior, but we also mix it up and talk about random things related to animals. We hope that by listening to this podcast, we can help you have a better relationship with your pet or any pet you meet. In this episode, we chat with Stephanie Reingruber, founder of Wish Upon a Rescue. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So let's get started and get right into it. So tell us about yourself, uh, your background, and how you got into working with animals. Sure. So I have kind of a different path that got me to here. Um, As a child, I did a lot of volunteering with my family, and so volunteering has always been something that was a part of me um, through church, through different community organizations. So that was something I grew up with. Um, my family often said we didn't have money to give, but we would give our time. So we did that a lot. Um, I have always loved animals ever since I was really little. I had quite a collection of pets growing up. Um, and I always took any avenue I could at the time. It was mostly books at the library to learn everything that I could about them, to care for them properly and teach everybody I knew about them. Um, and I had briefly considered becoming a veterinarian as a kid, but decided I wanted to just have animals as pets and a hobby and then um, be a human doctor. I actually did not become a human doctor, um, nor a veterinarian, but I did um, study animal-related things in, in college. Um, my undergrad degree is in chemistry biology with a focus on um, animal science I also have minors in Spanish and psychology. Um, While I was in college as an undergrad, I took some jobs in the biology department, one of which was the animal care director for the science department. So um, that was probably one of my favorite jobs ever, was taking care of the random collection of animals in the science department. And I spent a lot of my time there also trying to move them towards more humane treatment of the animals in the science department. Um, and building very elaborate enclosures and habitats for the lab animals. Um, After undergrad, I went to grad school um, for occupational therapy, which is actually what my full-time day job is. I'm a pediatric occupational therapist. I primarily work with kids birth to six with a wide variety of different disabilities and special needs, um, and that's really where my passion is for that. While I was in grad school, we weren't supposed to really have jobs outside of school, but we were allowed to volunteer, and the school would pay you a small um, hourly wage for volunteering. So I decided to volunteer as a dog walker for a local um, animal rescue that had a physical facility, and that was kind of how I got started in rescue, was just going six to eight on Monday nights for a while to walk dogs for a rescue. Um, Pretty quickly, though, from starting as a volunteer, I took on a more active role and started um, taking on some leadership positions for that rescue and learning a lot very quickly. The first thing I ever did for them was just a transport. And I ended up meeting somebody who would become one of my really good friends on that transport. And she was probably the biggest inspiration to me in terms of, you know, going on and starting my own rescue and moving forward from there. So let's go back to the science department and working with animals in science because that's always something that's 
at least when I started working, learning, trying to learn about dogs and trying to work with dogs a couple of years ago was when you think about the treatment of in a science department, when animals are tested on and, and whatnot, you don't really think of positive things usually of what they do to the animals. So was it hard working there? No. I mean, did they do some not so good things to the animals there or was it a pretty okay place? Um, that's a complicated question. Um, yes, there were definitely parts of it that were really difficult for me. Um, and I mean, I don't like to see anything, you know, suffer, suffer. I don't like to see anything die. Um, I will say that every single precaution and step was taken by the science department to ensure that none of the animals did suffer. Um, even when we did have to use them for different experimental purposes. Um, I think, I know, I know since I've left there that there have been even further changes in the, in the college, um, which is really great to know and see. And I do think I had some part in that shift. Um, but while I was there, I did the best I could for the animals. We had, we had um, a lot of aquatic frogs. We had turtles. Um, we had a guinea pig that somebody abandoned in the forest um, that just became a pet. Most, um, we had a gigantic, I don't remember the number of gallons, but I want to say like 500 gallon saltwater um, reef tank, which I took care of, which had wow. like cucumbers and anemone, um, living coral, crabs, crustaceans, all kinds of cool little creatures. Um, there was a time where I took care of an abandoned baby um, cardinal that fell out of a tree. You know, those, I have fond memories of leaving the bar, walking across the street to the science department, feeding the baby cardinal, going back to the bar. So. Well, that's actually kind of, that's more than, a, that's kind of cool. It's not a, it didn't, doesn't seem like it was necessarily a terrible place where, you know, like when you think about them, you know, testing monkeys or dogs or bunnies and they're like holding no. their eyes open and restraining them and, it's really cool that they were open to being more humane, you know, like you, some, I just feel, maybe I'm just ignorant to it. Just felt, just feels like when you think about science that they're all like, oh, whatever, they're just animals, you know, like there's no caring yeah. in there. No, we were a very small college. Um, and I will say there was nobody that none of the professors, none of the staff, none of the students that took any of it lightly at all. Um, and we only used live animals in the cases where they absolutely needed to, um, we did have like dissection classes and they were actually, um, cats that had been euthanized by the local, like humane societies for whatever reasons, um, okay. which is kind of like a repurposing and at least their bodies aren't going to waste. You know, they were euthanized or anyways, um, not that that's something you want to talk about, but, um, right. it definitely, while it's it, parts of it were difficult, it, it was not, um, as gruesome as sometimes maybe it's made out to be. Do you think that helped you? And as we go to our next question, do you think that helped you with starting your rescue was having that experience in the science department? Do you think it helped shape any of that? I think definitely my love of science and just that being my background definitely plays a role in having the rescue because I am very science driven, data driven. Um, you know, I work very closely with our veterinarians and, um, myself, I have a, a huge passion for animal behavior. Um, I do also now do some dog training, and that has been a passion of mine for years. Um, you know, I'm that weirdo who isn't 
wasn't a dog trainer going to continuing at dog training sessions or drawing a blank here on the word, but just for fun, because I enjoyed learning about it. Um, I'm working towards getting um, a certification in dog training of some sort, because that is really important to me. Um, but that's definitely, I think, a passion that has been shaped from my my undergraduate studies. So let's get on to Wish Upon a Rescue. And because sure. you're a founding, you're one of the founding people for it. So how did that come about? And was it just you? Did you set up a team with you? I had no, re- with a lot of things in my life that things sort of just happen. Um, you know, just like I tell everybody, I had no intentions of becoming a dog trainer. It just sort of happened. I had no intentions either of starting a rescue. It sort of just happened. Um, the rescue that I had started volunteering with when I was in grad school actually closed. Um, prior to them closing, I had really learned, um, I learned so much, but I'd also learned so much about what not to do and how um, things shouldn't be done. And I feel like when that kind of came to a halt, um, I just couldn't imagine my life without having that rescue piece because it had been so, become so important to me. Um, by the time that rescue kind of hit a brick wall, um, so to speak, I mean, I was spending 40, 50 hours a week volunteering for that group. Um, and so to go from that to nothing was, was a, a, you know, a big change. Um, and I remember going to meet with my dad, actually, because I was so upset about finding out all of these behind the scenes things that I didn't know about that other rescue and then having it just collapse um, where I had thought, you know, I was spending all this time doing all this good. In reality, I didn't know the truth of what was going on. Um, and so I, I went to my dad and I was like, listen, like this, is this, 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 I'll look at all these things, look at what happened. Like, what do I do? And my dad was like, start your own rescue. And I was like, well, I guess I could, like, I never thought about it, but I mean, I suppose I could. Um, and then I did take some time to think about it. I talked to some people, um, some close friends, and we decided to go for it. Um, I think part of what shaped that is I've, throughout my entire life, I've always kind of been a natural leader. Um, my dad was a politician for much of my childhood, and so I kind of grew up um, watching him and learning from him, and I've always been that person to take on leadership roles um, in every aspect of my life. So it just sort of made sense to step into that even further. I couldn't really picture myself at that point going to a new rescue and starting over as a volunteer and not having some of that leadership piece. So, um, so I did, I am technically the founder of Wish Upon a Rescue, but I definitely didn't do it alone. Um, I'm very lucky to have a lot of people who, um, trust me and, you know, who I consider family at this point, who we really built, built a leadership team. And that's something that we've carried through from the beginning. So we have our board of directors. There's five of us, um, myself, the president, and then we have a, a secretary, an assistant secretary, a treasurer, an assistant treasurer, um, and that's the formal board of directors. And then we also have our like day-to-day directors. So we've got our animal care director, who's a vet tech. We've got um, our finance director, education and outreach, volunteer coordinator, marketing, foster coordinator. So yeah, so the board and then also those directors kind of encompass our leadership team. So when I first did start WISH, um, I started by kind of 
creating this organizational hierarchy of like my vision for how it was going to run. And so we had that board of directors, we had those acting, you know, day-to-day directors, and then each of those directors had teams. And that was kind of my vision. So I recruited friends and rescue that I knew. I recruited um, community members and I kind of built up that first original leadership team. And then from there, we really worked together meeting weekly um, to write up policies and procedures and put together contracts and um, really try and get everything into place. It, it was very, very important to me that this rescue and that wish is every single day following the law and going by the books and following our policies and procedures. How long did that take from when you said, let's do it to when you officially became a rescue? Eight or nine months. So wow. we first met for the first time, like our Articles of Incorporation are in October, and we did not take our first animal until the next August. Um, I definitely wanted us to be in a position where we were prepared. Um, One of our board members is a lawyer, so we also have that um, piece of it, but everything, you know, was done ahead of time. Um, We also, I didn't, in good conscience, I couldn't take in any animals until I knew that we could care for them. So we did not take in any animals until we raised our first $5,000. Um, and I would say that was one of the biggest challenges of having a rescue was raising money for a rescue that wasn't even in existence yet and saying like, please donate to us so that we can start saving animals. But um, that's always something that in the back of my mind that I never want us to be in a position where we can't care for the animals that we've taken on. Are, is your rescue nonprofit or is it for profit? No, we're nonprofit. We are, are a registered 501c3. Are most rescues that way or are there some that are for profit or is that does that go against what rescue means if they are for profit? Most are nonprofit, um, but that's also kind of a complicated question. And I'm not sure I can really give you a good answer on that because I don't really have the answer. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so you spoke of one of the challenges was raising money. What other kind of challenges are there when you're starting a rescue and you don't because you don't have a physical building that you that you house animals in, everything's fostered. So So when we were first starting, definitely um, some of the challenges were just the paperwork pieces of it, being sure that all of our contracts were um, in compliance legally and that they would also stand up in court if needed to, um, making sure that we had policies and procedures in place for everything, which was trickier. You know, we would think, oh, we've got, you know, everything we need for this department. And then somebody would be like, well, what about... (laughs) you know, X, Y, or Z, and we'd have to kind of go back to the drawing board, um, come up with more policies or change policies. Um, We did a lot of research. We reached out to a lot of other successful groups to see what they were already doing. Um, And we just kind of built up from the ground there, from the ground up there. I think the other challenge was just getting buy-in, not only from, you know, this new team that I was building, but also from our, you know, our supporters and trying to build um, people who were going to support us and, you know, come to events and share our Facebook posts and um, help us get off the ground. I think that part was also really tricky. So you started this rescue and you're ready to take on animals, whether dogs, cats, whatever, you know, how do you gain trust of a, a shelter or wherever the animals come from to give them to you to say, hey, we're, we're, we're legitimate. And then B, how do you get people to come to you and say, hey, I want to help foster animals for your rescue because, you know, you're great. I was in um, a little bit of a unique position in that I had 
been involved in rescue for several years at this point, four or five years. So I had built up a lot of friendships across different rescues with different rescue coordinators from animal shelters um, all over the state, multiple states away. Um, I, so I kind of had already had some of those personal relationships. Um, so I already kind of had the trust of some of those other organizations and other people, which was really where I started from. So technically, if you have a 501c3, most of your shelters have a form that you fill out. So even if you're not a rescue that they even know, you can still get dogs from them. So your rescue coordinators, it's um, it can be very political. Um, they pick their favorite rescues and that's who they call first for dogs. That's um, absolutely true. Which is kind of shitty because there's plenty of shitty rescues, especially as a positive reinforcement trainer. I'm just cringing because I know what's going to happen to those poor dogs that probably could be great and are going to get turned to shit. Right. There's definitely a huge piece of it that is just relationship based and like building personal relationships with the different organizations. Um, I'm, you know, I, I have very personal relationships with many of the area shelters and animal control and their rescue coordinators or their leaders or their volunteers. Um, and that's definitely a huge part of it. So is there's like this, so when you started, was there, you know, like when somebody starts a business, you know, whether it's a restaurant or dog walking or something, you know, sometimes there's like that competition where people like, yeah, we need to push you out because you're new and you're going to take away something from us. Is there that kind of competition in the rescue world? Even, you know, like, I guess what to Allie's point, you know, saying that there's favoritism and like, we like you and, you know, and, and unfortunately there is a lot of politics in rescue, which is something that I can't stand. Um, I will say, we are a smaller rescue and I do my best to stay out of, you know, a lot of those politics. Um, we're a little bit sheltered out here in the suburbs. We're not like in the city where I think it can be a little bit dicier. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, I have, you know, there's a few rescues that I work very closely with that I'm very, have very good friendships with. Um, we're all, we're like-minded. We feel that we think the same way we have the same beliefs and we work very well together and we coordinate like, okay, Hey, there's this dog at this animal control, this one at this animal control, like which one can you take? We'll take the other. Let's work together to get them all out. Um, so I tend to just stick with those, um, animal controls and shelters that I have those relationships with and also work with the groups that I have, you know, those similar beliefs and that we have that relationship. So I guess another question people might want to know is, do you make money off of this or does anybody in your organization or is this totally you volunteering? You are just doing this out of the goodness of your heart and you are just that kind of person. So we are a hundred percent volunteer. We do not have any paid staff. We do not have any volunteers that make any money. I definitely don't make any money. And if my husband is listening to this, (laughs) the amount of my own personal money that I donate to the rescue, you know, is, is significant at times. Um, you know, if we need food and we don't have any, you know, yes, sometimes the rescue buys it if we have, you know, the funds, but other times I just pick it up. Um, you know, if I'm out shopping and I know we need peanut butter for the dogs, the foster dogs pills, like I'm just getting it with my own groceries. And I think a lot of our volunteers do that as well, especially our fosters. 
Um, we are very, very lucky and very grateful that we have a lot of um, businesses and individuals in the community that support us. So we very rarely are hurting for donations. My garage is our storage unit. So um, our fosters are generally very well stocked. And that's one of the things I'm very conscious of is making sure our fosters have everything that they need for their animals. Um, but like today, we put out a wish list Wednesday post on Facebook. Like we are almost out of wet cat food. Um, now I had, you know, one volunteer say, well, I'll go get some for my fosters. Don't worry about it. I picked up some for my own foster kittens, you know, today, and I'm not going to worry about them. But, um, you know, that is, we all kind of, nobody's getting paid. We're not making any money. <laughs> right. So let's pretend your husband isn't listening. What does he think about all of this? Is he on board with it? Was it hard to get him? What did you know him at the time you started the rescue? And then, and then, or if you didn't, how did, how did you get him to buy in to say like, or, you know, how, how did that all work? We met and started dating at the time. I, I was a dog walker. I had just started doing a little bit more volunteering with that other rescue. Um, I had one dog of my own, my Sophia, um, I did tell him on our first date that Sophia and I were a package deal and he was like, okay, I never had planned on having any pets. Like I grew up with cats, but I never, I don't want dogs. I don't want cats. Like I never want animals. And I was like, well, Sophia and I are a package deal. And he was like, okay, like a little chihuahua. Sure. That'll be fine. Well, I didn't tell him that Sophia is terrified <laughs> of men. Um, so <laughs> he came over then to my house, like watch the Hawks game, I think. And, there was little Sophia like peeing in the corner, three rooms over, like trembling, terrified of him. And if you ask him now, he'll say that at that moment, he thought it was over, that he had no chance of us like actually dating. But for some reason he stuck, he stuck around. And um, after a few months, Sophia decided he wasn't a murderer. And um, now, you know, fast forward six years, Sophia prefers him to me, um, their besties. But he knew that I enjoyed volunteering. He knew that I was a dog walker. Um, we were already living together when I decided to start Wish Upon a Rescue, and he was he's always been very supportive of it. Um, I think he gets a little frustrated at times because it is uh, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of stress on me. And, um, you know, when there's an emergency or something happens, I'm, I'm leaving. You know, it's like, oh, I've got to go. Sorry. I, you know, got to go take care of this. And I think that does get a little bit frustrating because I'm probably not home as much as he would always like. But um, I mean, I can call him now and say, hey, I need you to drive to, to Kankakee and pick up this sick kitten. And he'd be like, okay, fine. Where am I going? So, you know, he's given up his garage space to be our storage locker. And um, he comes to events and he, he is very supportive. I'm very lucky. So going back to your rescue, someone calls you, say, hey, are you interested in helping us out with, I don't even know the right lingo, but whatever, just helping us out rescuing from a shelter, from whatever. How do you decide if you say yes or you say, yeah, we're going to pass on this one? So we have an intake team um, that handles all of our intake. We do take in um, cats and dogs of all ages, all breeds, all sizes, um, all, you know, needs. We do take in a lot of seniors, a lot of um, animals with special needs. That kind of goes back to my background a little bit of being a, a human occupational therapist. Um, I have that rehab side, so I, I love um, taking in those that need just a little bit of extra help, but we do a wide variety of everything. Um, basically if we have a foster home that 
is available and that um, is able to handle an animal, then we can take them in. But it is an entire intake team decision. The intake team is um, myself, our animal care director, um, whose her input to the intake team is, you know, medically, can we handle this? Can our fosters handle the medical piece? What type of medical care are we going to be looking at if we take this animal in? Finance director, she advises, where do we stand financially? You know, can we afford whatever care this animal might need, whether it is training support, whether it is medical support? Um, you know, are we looking at a hospice dog that we're going to have three years? Are we looking at, you know, a puppy that's going to be adopted in three weeks? Um, then we also have our marketing director, our foster care director, and education and outreach on that intake team. And everybody kind of puts in, you know, foster care director says, do we have an open foster? You know, can, do we have somewhere for this animal to go? Marketing and education and outreach, um, their input is more of, you know, let's say the animal has a broken leg. Can, do we, can we do a fundraiser to raise the money we need to care for that? Or, um, you know, do we have that, an event set up or those different pieces of it? So anybody on the intake team can say, hey, I've got this animal intake team. What do you think? Um, everybody on the team discusses it, and then um, we do a vote on it, like an actual formal vote for each animal that comes in on the intake team, um, majority rules. I would say 85% of the time, it's a unanimous yes or a unanimous no. Very rarely is it skewed like four out of six or five out of six or um, whatever it may be, but typically it's pretty unanimous. Um if we, we usually do generally discuss and say like, yes, we will take this animal in if we have a foster. So then once the team's decided where we can handle this, we can handle the medical, we can handle the behavioral needs, then the foster coordinator says, okay, let me check with the fosters and see if we have a foster available. Does it ever cross your mind? And I guess, cause I've uh, lately I've, I've been reading and hearing shelters talk about, and maybe Allie can help me with the correct term for this, or you, you might know it too, like how many animals like a shelter kills that they keep trying to get to that 95% out the door rate or whatever, whatever that, whatever like that the is. Live release that, rate. Yeah. Thank you. Live release rate. Does, does that ever come into factor to say, and I think you might've answered that where, you know, how long, you know, hospice is going to be, or, you know, how long is it going to take to adopt this dog out? So one of my big things and my, anybody on my team will tell you this is I try to be as tra transparent as possible with everybody. So when we are considering taking in a dog that might be hospice, which we don't always know that ahead of time, you know, I'll be upfront, you know, we may get information and the checklist could say A, B, C, and D, that's the information on this cat. And then we take in said cat and I've told Foster A, B, C, and D about cat. Well, we have the cat for two days and it's really H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Um, you know, it, it, that happens very often. Um, but we try our best to, you know, if we're expecting this to be a hospice, when we go to the Foster, like, hey, Foster, this is what we know. It might end up hospice. Like, are you okay handling that for possibly, you know, hospice or until we figure out what we're doing and then we can move it to a hospice foster. Um, so we do try to keep those things in the back of our mind. Um, but in terms of your question on like the live release rate. I mean, I guess I'm just, you know, going at, is it a consideration for how quickly can you get this dog adopt or animal adopted out? Is that, is that even like a high up there part of the process or you don't, don't really think about that 
when you're when you're doing when you're doing it when you're evaluating it occasionally comes up but i will say that's pretty far down on the like totem pole of things that we discuss especially because we do take in so many seniors or dogs that have different special needs i there's really no telling how long that they'll be with us um and it's really hard to gauge because there's dogs that come in or um where i might say oh we're going to have this dog for a long time like for whatever reason and then they're adopted in a month um you know and then there's dogs that come in and I'm like, oh, this happy-go-lucky, you know, one-year-old mutt is going to be adopted so fast. She's so great. And then here we are three months later and it's crickets in the adoption application department for that animal. So I, I've yet to figure out any rhyme or reason for who gets adopted when. Um, it really seems just like a luck of the draw. Are there any animals that you just flat out won't accept? So we don't have any firm policies. Like we won't take any animals that are blue or we won't take any, you know, but I will tell you, um, we typically don't take, um, like shepherds, like purebred German shepherds or huskies or, um, like purebred Dobermans or Rottweilers. And simply because we have really great breed specific rescues in the area that are, um, that's what they do. You know, they are the special specialists in that, in those breeds. Um, and it's, it's a little bit out of my comfort zone. I'm much more comfortable with my fearful half feral chihuahuas and my pity mixes and, um, you know, everything in between. So, you know, if for some reason we got a really great foster that was super experienced in purebred German shepherds and, you know, maybe I'd be willing to step in that direction. But right now we, I just don't feel like we can do them justice, especially when there's whole rescues that are dedicated to that breed. You know, I've done volunteering also and. You know, and one thing I always hear from volunteers is, you know, like, and why some people can't volunteer is they're like, I just want to take everyone home. Do you still have that feeling even after, you know, all this time of being in the rescue that when you see a dog and you hear about it, you're like, oh, I wish I could take it home with me? Or are you, or have, I mean, it sounds bad to say you've separated yourself, but can you do that now where you're like, that can go to a foster and I'm okay with that. I've accepted that I can't take it home with me and I can't, you know, I'm not going to be the one personally helping this animal. I mean, I would love to take them all home, but I also know that's entirely unrealistic. Um, right. I feel like I, you know, I have a desire to help every animal. Um, you know, I would love to take every single animal that comes across my text message or my Facebook message or my Facebook feed or emails that needs, you know, a rescue placement in. But I also, um, I'm pretty good about thinking and leading with my brain and not as much my heart, which is a skill that I've developed. Um, and really worked hard on um, to where I, 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 I know what we can handle and what we can't. And I would never want to put anybody in my team in a position where they were in over their heads or where they were in a position that they couldn't manage. Um, you know, that is one of the things that I love about our team. Um, and it really is a we. You know, people will say, oh, you've done such a good job. Oh, you know, Stephanie, this is so great. You run this rescue. But it's not, it's not a me. It's not an I, it's a, we, like we are a team. And so any decisions that I make impact everybody, um, which is why everything is so team-based in our discussions. Um, anytime we do have to make a trip tricky decision, or we have to make a tough call, or we have to, um, you know, handle an emergency it's done as a team because that's, that's what we are. So you had challenges in the beginning. So let's, Forward to now, we've had the pandemic going on, so I'm sure that adds another type of challenge. But in general, 
even in non-pandemic times, what are challenges you still face today? Are they the same as when you started, the same kind of challenges, or are there different ones now that you've been going along for a while? Um, I think they're pretty similar challenges. I will say probably our biggest challenge is um, making sure that we have enough money and donations um, in the bank to care for all of our animals. And I will say that's probably one of our biggest limiting factors is, um, is our, is donations. I don't think people always realize, um, that we are entirely run on donations. You know, that a lot of people think that we're government funded or that we, you know, there's grants falling off trees, but that's just not the reality. Um, and I think, you know, even we get a lot of questions like, oh, your adoption donations. Oh, you know, there's so much money. And in reality, I don't have an exact figure for you, but I would say we spend more than the adoption donation on 95 to 98% of our animals. I'd be hard pressed to find you more than a couple handful of animals that we didn't spend more on than what their donation was. I can give you a figure from the rescue that I used to be on the board of. We would spend an average of $311.86 per animal, and our highest adoption fee was $300. Wow. Yeah. I mean, even like we had a puppy that got adopted today. So we did recently raise our adoption donations, especially with COVID and not being able to have events. So our puppies are $400 at this point, which includes spay and neuter, um, you know, all their vaccinations up to age, fecal testing, um, heartworm testing if they're old enough, microchips, all of that. And we spent $700 on him. I mean, and that's a puppy. So I, in addition to that, like other challenges are just managing like all the behind the scenes paperwork, um, dealing with, you know, the enormous amounts of emails and phone calls and messages that we get on a daily basis as, you know, all being an all volunteer organization that does lead to its own challenges because all of us are working after our full-time jobs. I have a full-time job, I have a part-time job, and then also, you know, leading this group. And that's the same for most of my volunteers. We're all working, you know, as hard as we can. And I think um, the public isn't always aware of that. And so that is also a a pretty big challenge. So going back to the financial part, so you brought that up about needing, you know, money. How do you, even before COVID and, you know, during COVID, how do you go about finding money then? The bulk of it is donations. It's through um, pre-COVID, we were doing one to two monthly fundraisers or different events, um, ranging from online auctions to doing, you know, paint and wine and sip or what's it called? Paint wine and sip and paint, or, yeah. Paint and sip. Yeah. That type of thing. Um, doing different creative things to try and get people to come and support us. Um, we do have some, you know, reaching out to businesses and looking for sponsors. We are, we do apply for grants and we do get some grants, but they're smaller. Um, Grants are often given out based on like the size of your organization and your operating budget. And being that we are a pretty small rescue compared to a lot of the rescues in the area. Um, We're not always, you know, top of the list for some of those grants. Um, Now we're relying a lot on online fundraisers and doing virtual trivia nights and virtual bingo and um, trying our best, you know, one day at a time that way. I can imagine it's 
uh, when when COVID hit, it was probably became even more stressful because now you had to kind of rethink how you how do you get money now since you can't have events, you can't do stuff. And was that a that I, I mean that hit a lot of people by surprise. Obviously, I'm assuming it, you guys did too. How long did it take you to try to figure out how to how to pivot to what to, to what you need to do? You know what? It didn't take us as long as maybe some other businesses. Rescue already is so social media based. Um, real, I mean, in reality, it, it is it relies on social media. That it was a pretty smooth transition. But I will say that we're still struggling to find creative ways to engage the donor base. Um, kind of an ongoing thing. So, what is something you wish people knew about rescues that they don't? Um. I've touched on the adoption fees. You know, I think a lot of people are definitely like, why are you making me pay for this animal? Um, I think going along with that, a lot of people assume that vets are giving us these massive discounts on their services. And that's really just not the case. You know, we are super, super fortunate. We have some great vets and vet offices that work with us. And, you know, I'm beyond grateful to everything they do for us. Um, But they're also not able to just give us, you know, services for free. Um, our average discount range is probably 10 to 20%, depending on the vet clinic, um, which is, is super helpful and amazing, but it's not as much as everybody thinks. It's not free. It's not you know, free. It's not just their, um, right. I think the other big piece of this, uh, things, you know, that I wish people would know, um, is we truly do know these animals, you know, we are, because we are foster based, they are living in people's houses. You know, I know a lot about all of the animals in our care and I really try hard to meet almost all of the animals that we take in personally. Um, But one of the most common and most um, frustrating aspects is that the general public seems to think that we don't know what we're talking about. So like, for example, we've got currently a eight year old, um, half blind Shih Tzu from a puppy mill who six months in still, you know, is extremely under socialized, really only likes his foster mom. Um, he's a great dog, but he needs a lot of ongoing work. He's not just your happy go lucky, you know, little fluffy dog. And he's terrified of men, absolutely terrified of men. So his foster mom, our foster coordinator, all of us have like crafted this beautiful bio, you know, explaining how he really would strive in a female only home, how he needs other dogs to feel confident. Like he needs a fenced in yard, like all of these pieces to help him be successful. And I would say I'm getting sometimes 10 emails a day from families that just didn't don't didn't read the bio or um, have read the bio and emailed me and said, well, I know in your bio, you said he doesn't like children and he doesn't like men, but I'm a single father and I have three children under the age of five and no other pets and no fence in the yard. And I've had dogs my whole life, so I'm sure I can take care of him. And that's really, really frustrating. I wish that they, the public kind of understood that, you know, we're not putting limitations on these dogs just for fun. Like, you know, if there is a limitation like that, it's there for a reason. And we truly strive, like our ultimate goal is happy pets in happy homes. Um, and I want to set every single one of our cats and dogs up for success in their future home. So, um, you know, they're not just like willy nilly bios that we created. You know, I, I, I wish that people recognize the, the time and effort that we put into each and every one of our animals and, and understood that when we do have to say like, no, I'm sorry, this isn't a good fit for reasons X, Y, and Z, that it truly is not just because I don't like you. I don't even know you. It's because it, it's not a good fit. And that's really tricky. 
I don't even think people read the bios. Well, that is yeah, they're like, oh, that dog. I can, I can, I can attest to sort of that when before I knew what puppy mills were and how widespread they were, and that the stores got their dogs from puppy mills. We got our first dog, me and my wife, because in the picture of the puppy, he was wearing a bow tie, and the only reason why we got, I mean, turned out to be my best friend, but you know, it was supposed to be her dog, but it turned into my dog and my best friend. But I would, I would have said no right away, but she said, yeah, but look at, he has a bow tie, you know? And I think that's what a lot of people do. It's just like the dog is cute. The dog is, I mean, even when I volunteered at the shelter, that was what a lot of it was like, and it was an open intake shelter. So you got some, you know, you got a lot of people coming in like, I want the meanest dog here, the biggest dog. They don't even, you know, this dog bites people. Great. I want that. You know, like no, no consideration. And I'll go with you on the price thing at this shelter. It was like $90 to adopt a dog. And people were still like $90. That's a lot of money. And, and you know, you want to be like, well, can you afford food? You can't even afford $90, right. but you want to, you have to feed and, and take, take it to the vet. That's another um, frustrating thing like about that. rescue is they're like, I can't afford the adoption fee, but I can give this dog a really good home. What kind of really right. good home really? can you give this dog that costs $150? Because my right. vet bills every month are in the thousands of some months. So yeah. then what? You drop your dog back off at the shelter or you call the rescue and it's their problem? We strive to have like really adopter friendly policies. That is something that I really do try to do, but there's limitations to it. You know, I, we need to ensure the animals are going to a safe home. We're devoting so much time, resources, energy, love, patience, blood, sweat, and tears into these animals. And, um, well, you know, I truly do think that everybody applies with the best intentions. Like there are limitations to where we will adopt, um, because they, you have to, have some means to care for this animal. I, I can't make any guarantees to their health or temperament or well-being or I, you know, I can't guarantee that, you know, you adopt this dog right now when my vet is said, oh, he's perfectly healthy. Here's, you know, his blood work or here's whatever. And six months from now, he doesn't, you know, break a leg. I, I can't control that. Um, but that's part of being a pet owner. I think um, going back to your original question, my only other really big piece of what I wish people knew is that you know, we are doing our very, very best. You know, we are all doing this because we love animals and we want to help animals and we want to place these animals in the very best of homes. And, you know, that burnout, I will tell you, it comes from members of the public that just don't quite understand that. Um, I can tell you Monday was like a really stressful day at work for me and my personal job, but I had 10 missed calls from the same person along with five emails from the same person and six Facebook messages saying, why aren't you answering my phone calls? Why aren't you returning my phone calls? Um, You know, what kind of business are you that you're not calling me back? And I'm like, you've called me eight times in eight hours and I've been at work. Like I don't even check this voicemail until I'm off my real job. Um, I don't have business hours. It's not like I'm sitting at a desk, just like purposefully like ignoring your phone call. Um, I think that's something that, I I wish people gave us a little bit more, I had a little bit more patience with us because, you know, I get, when we get done here, I'm going to go open my email and start answering rescue emails for the day. And last time I checked, there were 53 emails that we received today that I'm going to try and get to all of them. Um, And sometimes I miss some, I'm going to be honest. I answer as many as I can get to and I do my best, but that's, that's a really challenging piece. And I know from my personal experience, I've had to tell people, 
blatantly, and I know people still don't read and they still will not follow them. Like I, you need to give me 24 hours to respond. I hopefully will respond sooner, but I need up to 24 hours and that's how long it's going to take me to respond. And, you know, and people still don't always. I literally have a vacation response that says, give me up to seven days and people don't care. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go a little slower on this one because I don't have time or the (laughs) mental capacity to not be upset with you right now. And the part about rescue, you have to run it like a business, but it's not a business. It's a not-for-profit. Like you are doing this on the spare time that you have. And if you don't have the time, usually you make the time, but sometimes you just can't. There's not enough time in the day. And I will tell you, while I do my best to answer every email and inquiry and application and phone call within, you know, that two to three days, sometimes it's Saturday night at midnight when I'm finally getting through all the emails for the week and it may be a week later. And I'm, I'm always apologetic and I feel awful, but I'm doing the best that I can. You know, when I get... I, I'm, I get off of work and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go home and get through all of these emails. But I get a phone call from my foster that lives 50 miles away that they've got a dog who's really sick. I, I need to go do that. And that unfortunately has to take priority. And I don't have somebody I can say, hey, go answer these 50 emails for me. Um, they just have to wait. And unfortunately, I do need to sleep sometimes. Do you? Not much. Who does that? <laughs> Let's get back on to, I have another question about behavior because you brought up fostering and you know, studying behavior and work, volunteering at an open intake shelter where the dogs, you know, were in cages all the time. And when you adopt them out, you you don't really know what you're getting into because how they act in a cage setting is very different when they get into, you know, the family or a home and they start getting comfortable or they start, you know, freedom or whatever you want to call it. Do you think there's a benefit to adopting a dog from a rescue as opposed to a shelter where a dog has been in a cage? Because you can kind of see how the dog reacts in a home life? I think there's multiple pieces to that. I will say, you know, regardless of if they're coming from a shelter setting or they're coming from a home setting, when they go to a new environment, they're going to be different. Um, You know, dogs respond to their environments. They respond to, um, you know, the differences in the people that are caring for them. Um, Dogs are not good generalizers. Just because maybe they were potty trained in their foster home does not mean they're going to walk into any house and automatically be potty trained. Um, you know, that foster may have had them on a very specific schedule or knew how to read their cues or they knew how to alert them to go out. Um, so there's always going to be some sense of some, some difference when you tra- and some transition time there. I do think we do have a little bit of at least some improve or some better view of what they're like in a home than coming straight from a shelter. The other piece of that is that a lot of the open access shelters, and I don't know specifically about the one you worked at, but a lot of them, um, the dogs or cats that they're putting up for adoption where you can just walk in and adopt them generally are a little bit easier dogs at times at times um, than some right. of the animals that they're sending out to rescues. Because the ones that we're taking in are the ones that need a little bit extra time or TLC or medical care or behavioral um, support in order to be their best selves. So that dog that we take in that needed, you know, five months of training support in order to, or behavioral support and medical support in order to be a successful dog, um, it it wouldn't be adopted straight from a a cage typically. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. Um, It's, uh, I mean, yeah, your dogs that are on the adoption floor are pretty solid generally. 
Um, I mean, it definitely varies per shelter. I've seen obviously a lot of shitty dogs come from shelters that have been on the adoption floor because you can only get so much of a read. Um, also the people that go to shelters, I would say are probably different adopters than go to rescue. I would agree with that for sure. There's, um, you know, less checking with shelters than there is with rescues with shelters. They're like, okay, these are the good ones. They can be adopted by your general public, which, you know, obviously we know isn't necessarily true because again, you only can get so much sense from a dog that's in a cage 23 hours a day. And like Stephanie said, you know, you could have a a dog in a home that has no kids, but they've tested them with kids and they've done great with kids. But then when they live with kids, completely different situation, they can't handle living with kids. Um, one of the rescues that I, um, do a lot of training work with one of their fosters called me last night and was like, this dog has been adopted out twice, has been returned twice. Now he doesn't display the behaviors in my home that he displays when he goes to the doctor's homes. So how do I like set him up for success? How do I stop the behaviors that I'm not seeing? And that's a pretty common thing because, you know, your average adopter, doesn't give them that transition time. Your average adopter is, oh, I want to go show them to my friends and invite people over. And, you know, that dog is like, whoa, I just spent three months in one home and I was in, you know, maybe a home before that. And then I ended up in a loud shelter and they're just like, I have no idea what's going on. So they need that transition time, even from a foster home. And I don't think people really realize that that is needed. You know, that's why a lot of rescues have, you know, the two week shutdown where it's no, do not do stuff with your dog. Do not introduce them to people. Do not introduce them to other dogs. Don't introduce them to your other pets because you're setting them up to fail. But you know, it's going to be different everywhere. We tell every single adapter, you know, the first, at least three to five days that this animal is in your home, they are super high stress. No new people, no new animals. Don't take them to the pet store. Don't take them places. Just let them decompress. You know, the first three or four weeks is going to be, you know, very slow. Get them used to your routine. We tell them it's going to take months before they're fully like, you know, acclimated to living in your home. And I can't tell you the number of times I get an email or a phone call from an adopter after two or three days. And it's like, Oh, I took my dog that I adopted from you on Friday and took him to the dog park and he was freaking out. (laughs) Or I took them to my gym where I work out and the dog was going to hang out in the dog area and it was growling at the other people there. And I was like, well, you just brought it home. Like it doesn't even know you, you know, I always love that. I stopped at the pet store on the way home and my dog did this and I'm like, I'm sorry, you did what? You didn't get the stuff before your dog came to you? Like, don't, don't go to the pet store with the dog you don't know. <laughs> We've been addressing that as much as we can, too. All of our dogs go home with a collar, a harness, um, and a leash. And if they don't have a tag, we'll send them home with our Wish Upon a Rescue foster tag. Sometimes we get them back, sometimes we don't, um, so that they can take them straight home. And they don't need to go and stop at the store and get things. And we try and talk ahead of time. Like most of our, I would say most of our dogs do multiple meets before we actually like do an adoption. So we'll do like a meet and greet. And then we will do the adoption like a few days later. There are some of the easier dogs. We will do a phone interview with the application and then do, you know, the meet and greet home visit adoption all at one time. And um, 
but generally our, we try and get everybody at least semi-prepared before so that we don't run into that where they're just taking the dog straight to a pet store. That's a good segue into the next question of what makes a good foster family? So I would say what makes a good foster family, at least for us, and this may be different for other organizations, but um, definitely a family that is patient, um, that is flexible, that is calmer in general, um, because rescue is is not easy. It is stressful. Things happen. Um, You know, if you bring home your new foster dog and they pee on the floor, like they peed on your floor. Like I'm not, I I can't just move them. I don't have a shelter to move them to. Like we need to work on potty training, but you need to just be able to handle things like that. Committed and go with the flow people. Go with the flow. Yes. And patient. The other piece that's super important is um, being open to learning and being open to like following directions and really taking the guidance from our team. Um, You know, we have a really awesome team. I, you know, just, such an awesome team. We've got trainers, we have um, vet techs, we have groomers, we have lots of different people that um, are there to support our fosters. But I would say the foster families that have the hardest time having foster animals are the ones that come in and are like, I've had dogs for 50 years, I don't need your, I don't need your training help, I know what I'm doing. And that just doesn't usually work very well with us. Um, We are a force-free rescue we are constantly working with our fosters and talking with adopters about the importance of positive reinforcement and force-free, um, not just training, but care in general, working on cooperative care and working on trying to eliminate stress and vet, vet visits and things like that. So um, having fosters that are willing and open to learning more about those things and, and following along with our team is really important. I think the other piece that's important is um fosters that have the ability to separate because we really do try um, our hardest to encourage all of our fosters to keep their new foster animals separate from their resident animals for at least a week or two um, while we're getting their vet care under um, control, while we're like getting them decompressed from being in a shelter situation, while we're figuring out, you know, what behavior support they might need. And so it sounds like fostering isn't for everybody. I would love to come on here and say that every single person can be a foster, but unfortunately I just, there, there definitely is limitations there. Now I will say, while not everybody can be a foster, I do think there's a way for anybody to help, whether it's volunteering, whether it's supporting us, whether it's, um, you know, helping network or it's sending your positive thoughts and prayers our way. Like any of that is appreciated. So if you can't foster, volunteer, you know, you can still be a supporter and come help at events when we can have them again. Um, so there's something for everybody to do, even if it isn't fostering. So let's say someone approaches you, they want to be a foster family. They go through all the process and you say, great, you can be a foster family for us. What do you offer? So how does that work? What do you offer them? What do they need to do? What do you do for them? How, what, what's the commitment like? For all of our fosters, they do have, we, we start with an application from there. We do like a phone conversation. I don't want to say an interview because it's not really an interview um, with our foster care director or one of our other leadership team members. Um, and then we kind of just go over like, what types of animals do you want to foster? What are your hard no's? What are your limitations? Like what's your background in training? What's your knowledge base so that we can get a feel for what type of foster animal we can place in your home? 
You know, are we looking at bottle baby kittens? Are we looking at 90 pound dogs that have behavioral issues? Like what can you handle? What do you, what do you want in your home? Um, from there, once we've got you kind of onboarded, then we have in the back of our head, like, oh, Joe, our new foster can take any, you know, dog friendly male dog who's under 50 pounds. So then as I'm getting emails and messages and texts and things like that saying, you know, here's the dogs that we need rescued from X, Y, and Z animal controls, I can say, oh, this one looks like it's a good fit for Joe. Then I would send it to our intake team. Intake team would say, sure, if we have a foster. Foster coordinator would say, okay, hey, Joe, here's this dog. This is what we know about the dog. If it's close enough, we can go meet the dog before we decide, you know, to take it, which we do for the most part. Somebody either from our team meets the animal before we agree to take it into the rescue or somebody that we trust and know meets the animal before we agree to take it in. And then we set, if Foster's like, yes, I will take in this dog as my foster. And our team's like, yes, we can support this dog in our program. Then we take the dog in. Um, we provide all the supplies requested. Some fosters, I'll tell you, they don't take any supplies other than our harness, leash, collar, and tag. They want to provide it all on their own. Some of our fosters take all of our supplies, which could be crates, potty pads, um, hoop pickup bags, food, litter, treats, toys, um, bowls, blankets, beds, um, pretty much anything you could want, pet stairs. Um, so we do provide all of those things. We provide all the vet care. That's definitely one of the important ones is that our fosters are able to get their animals to one of our vets. We have vets kind of all over the place right now. We're a little bit different with COVID because some of our vets are like, nope, sorry, you're not working with rescues until COVID's over. Um, so we're a little bit more limited now, but we, we work as hard as we can to make that happen. Um, so we do cover all the vet care. We provide as much training support as possible, both for the cats and the dogs. Um, and that can look very different. So all of our fosters and volunteers actually have access to an online um, training academy, I guess, which is created for rescues and shelter staff. And it goes through the basics of um, dog care and positive reinforcement training. And it's got modules for how to train all different um, behaviors and also how to um, appropriately handle more of those like problem behaviors. So they have access to that all the time. Um, they have access to our different team members who are trainers. Um, we are recently starting something new because we've gotten to the point where we are a little bit bigger. We're doing um, teams. So our fosters are now put into teams where they can work with each other um, to kind of brainstorm and socialize and um, help each other out based on ge geographical regions because we kind of cover a large geographical space. Um, and if needed, we will also refer out to either behavioral consultants, other trainers. We've, you know, used Allie before, um, or even veterinary behaviorists if needed. Um, in addition to that, we, we provide whatever other support they need. Um, and then when it comes time for actual adoption, we work with the foster. It's definitely, again, like a team approach to getting the animals adopted. So, um, we work on a bio together the, that all gets posted and, you know, put into different databases. And then when we do have applications, our fosters, you know, we forward the applications to them. Um, some of our fosters are like, I don't need to see it. You handle it. Like, it's fine. Just, you know, let me know when they're getting adopted. And some of our fosters take 
very major role in that, and they will call potential adopters, and they're a little bit more um, experienced in that aspect of it. But we always have an adoption counselor and the foster with um, the animal when they're getting adopted. So we always have two of our team members there have to be in agreement with the decision that it's the right placement. Um, and then our adoption counselors handle like the paperwork side of everything. So the fosters don't have to worry about that. So what I'm hearing is that if you're thinking about fostering because you think you can make some money out of it, that's not the way this works. Oh no! Like the foster family doesn't get any of that $400 that you or you know whatever it is. That's not the right view to go into this. There's other avenues if you really want to be like that, that's you go somewhere else, but that's not what fostering is. You know what? I wish that I could pay all of our fosters because they deserve larger salaries than I make at my regular job. Um, right. But we just don't have the finances for that. I pay them in like dog treats and dog toys and right. like, <laughs> look at this really cool cat toy. I've got you guys or, um, you know, like I do try and do special things for the, the volunteers and the fosters when I can, but, um, Hopefully they know how much they're appreciated. Well, if they're still fostering fostering for you, then I think they do. I don't think, you know, I mean, even just talking to you in this, you know, in this podcast, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to sign up. Like, let, let, let me figure out how to help you somehow. Speaking with that, what can people do to help you out? What do you need? How can they help you? Um, well, number one would be foster because fosters, you know, we definitely need fosters. Our commitment for fostering is just to the specific animal. So we don't ask that you make like, I'm going to foster for a year. Or I'm going to foster for six months. It's just, um, we ask that like, if we ask you, Hey, Tom, are you willing to take in this kitten for us until it's adopted that you're making a commitment to that animal? Um, you know, as long as it may take to get it adopted now bearing any like, you know, emergencies or like unknown behavior problems that are like a serious threat to your home. You know, we, I, I will come and get them, you know, immediately if there is something really, you know, a, a problem. Um, but I, we do ask that you like really strive to make a commitment to that animal that you accept in your home because I don't have a backup shelter for them. Um, so, you know, we also need fosters that are short-term fosters or emergency fosters so that like if somebody is sick or, um, you know, there is an emergency that I have some backups, just like, hey, can you take this dog for a couple of days? until we can figure something else out. Um, if you're not able to foster or volunteer with us, we have um, lots of different departments and teams that need help. It, it can be whatever time you're interested in or willing to um, devote to or to wish. Um, it's things that some of the positions are things that can be done just remotely from home. Um, some are more active roles. So there's, there's something for everybody. And if you're not able to volunteer either, you're not able to foster, that's also okay. Give us a like on Facebook, share our posts, um, share our posts and community pages, invite friends and family to like our posts, comment on things. Even those, those little things are also really helpful. Um, attend our events or our fundraisers. Uh, we have some really great kids that um, do lemonade stands for us or penny drives, um, and we love all of that too. Um, We've got some really cute little cardboard boxes that some kids made as cat toys and uh, about three years ago. And I will say we're still pulling them out and the kittens love them. So um, we, we're just really appreciative of any support that anybody can give us. So final question and kind of wrap into the first question um, about when you started. What has changed, if anything, from when you started in rescue to now? Is, the land, is it different than 
when you started the rescue, the, the, you know, the climate, the world, how rescue is done, has there, has there been any changes? Okay. So two, two answers. Um, for me personally, or wish as an organization, nothing has changed for us. Um, you know, that none of that has impacted our policies or procedures or our treatment of the animals because we're doing exactly what we've always been doing. Um, you know, quality of life, I think always has to come above quantity of life. And that's something that has been very important to me from the start. Um, and something that we consider with all of our animals. So for us, it really hasn't changed much. Um, we've been forced free from the start. That's something that we have that from day one was very, very important to our entire team. Um, and while it is something that is a constant discussion, um, not about leaving the force free, but about how can we be more force free? How can we continue to educate our fosters on um, use of force free training methods in, the, in their foster homes? How can we educate our adopters? So that's not changing, but it is something that we're always working towards. Um, so again, for us, nothing has really changed. I've, like I said earlier, I personally, and as a rescue, try to stay out of, um, we kind of stay in our own bubble. You know, I have a few rescues that we're friends with, and I don't think for them anything has changed either because they're very like-minded. Um, as far as if the rescue world as a whole is shifting, um, I would love to say that I hope it is, but I guess I don't know that for sure. Um, you know, I, not I, yet. <laughs> it's not yet. See, and I just kind of stay in my own bubble. Like we do our thing. We take care of our animals. We have our close friends that we work together very well with. And I, you know, my friendships that I've built in rescue are incredible. And, um, you know, that's something that I think people don't also realize, but you know, so many people, both in WISH and in a few other organizations, you know, do I consider like family and friends, um, you know, we're, we're doing it, we're, we're doing everything that we can, um, and staying the course as far as everybody else. I don't really know. I hope, I hope, I hope that there's more and more groups that are changing some ways that maybe, um, would improve the climate as a whole, but. Yeah. So, I mean, so you're not, you're not being pressured by the financial burden to get the, to get the animals adopted out, bring in the next one. You're, you are actually taking the time to, if they need it, they get it. And there's, there's really no time limit. Like we've never had a discussion like, Oh, we've had this animal too long. Like, you know, that's it. That's never been a discussion. Um, we've had dogs who were on hospice with us for 18 months, you know, where the vet said, oh, I don't think they're going to live another six weeks. And 18 months later, they're still living their life. Um, and, and that's fine. Uh, you know, we love having them. I would never wish that their time with us was shorter. We, we are always considering quality of life, you know, whether it is mental illness or physical illness, like that is, that is a factor, but it's nothing to do with time. Right. Just what's best for the animal. Right. It's, you know. And sometimes that's a hard choice to make, but that is a choice that is what's best for them. And I certainly too, like, you know, we may have dogs with us that are like ready for adoption, but if we have applications that I are not good fits, we're not just adopting them out. Like they can stay, I'd rather them stay with us than us place them in a home that isn't going to be um, successful for the adopters or the, the animal. Um, that's not our goal here. I, I, you know, if animals have to come back, I will take them in a heartbeat. Um, I've gotten phone calls where I'm like, I will come get our dog back right now. Like I'll be there. Um, and we go and do that and, and I will do it every single time. I don't want to, but I will. Um, 
but I'd rather take the extra time and really try and place all the cats and dogs in their forever homes the first time. So how can people contact you about helping you doing whatever you need from them? You can visit our Facebook, send us a message on there. You can respond to any of our posts. You can email me. My email is Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot wishuponarescue at gmail.com. Or you can go to our website, wishuponarescue.org. And there's a contact us button or there's, um, you know, adoption application, foster application on our website as well. Great. And we'll include that in the notes. So if you didn't write that down, you can look back and click where you need to go with that. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us. I mean, I've only talked to you for this little bit, but it makes me want to help you out somehow, some way, which I don't know what that is yet, but we'll have to figure it out. Um, But thank you so much for for talking. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Um, We really covered a lot tonight, but um, thank you. Yeah. A big thank you to Stephanie for chatting about Wish Upon a Rescue. Hopefully you are inspired like I am to reach out and help them. If you are enjoying what you're hearing and haven't yet, please subscribe, comment, or rate our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Also, please share our podcast on social media. You can also join our Facebook group, at Who's Training Who, to chat about this topic or anything really about animals. If you have a topic idea or an Ask Your Trainer question, please comment in our Facebook group or email info at waggytails.pet. Thanks for listening to Who's Training Who.